today's episode is brought to you by Divine Social. Divine Social is a marketing agency that helps e-commerce stores who sell to makers, creators, crafters, artists, and DIY enthusiasts. They're behind some of the biggest brands in the creative industry, responsible for strategies to move your online traffic from prospects to buyers to raving fans. The team at Divine Social is offering a customized review of your shop to help you uncover what's keeping you from selling more. Go to divinesocial.com backslash CIA for more details. Thank you so much, Divine Social. And now here's the show. Welcome to episode 212 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about online learning with my guest, Craig Swanson. At the age of 18, Craig founded Swanson Tech Support and worked as a tech consultant for six years before founding Creative Techs, which led to over a million dollars in sales. Soon after, Craig co-founded the creative online learning platform, Creative Live, an idea that was birthed from a failed video trading program for his IT business. Creative Live would grow from a small startup to 70-plus employees offering workshops with top industry leaders like Tim Ferriss and Brene Brown. Now, Craig partners with creators, educators, and influencers by providing the missing piece that they need to get to the next stage of their business. And he's helping to build million-dollar businesses one step at a time. Craig Swanson, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for such a great introduction. Yeah, it's really great to have you. And I should disclose that I have a class that um, I filmed with Creative Live back in 2016. So I'm pretty familiar with the process, but um, I'm really interested in hearing your story and how this all came to be. So it sounds like you were pretty into computers at a young age. Is that right? <laughs> I was. So I, uh, if I just jump back even a little bit more. So my, my, yeah. dad, my dad was a scientist in, in Los Alamos and my mom was kind of a hippie. And so I kind of was, I, I grew up kind of with that mixed left brain and right brain energy. Um, and when I, when I, I left college early to start a company that was doing computer support for Seattle area designers, uh, photographers, and advertising agencies. So I have worked with creative professionals my entire career. And, and pretty much my role working with creative professionals is always helping build kind of the stability around them, the business structure, the, the things that will let them basically fly. And I, I guess I should say commercial creatives. So these are all creatives that are making money with their creativity. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so when was this, when you left college to sort of start doing this tech support stuff? What, like what, around what year was that? Do you remember? So, I mean, this would have been 2000, oh, it's not 2000, uh, uh, 1988 was okay, 1998, so that was early on. So before most people really had email, before people had the internet at home, even dial up AOL, none of that. Exactly. In fact, it was the Macintosh computer that had just come out that was just replacing typography for graphic designers that really was the reason why I had the ability to do the work I did because nobody had any prior experience. And um, 
and I, I really got into typography and, and graphic design. I was a graphic design major at the University of Washington, although I only, I only went two semesters. Um, and so I got to work with some of the best uh, creatives and some of the best designers in Seattle for, for about 20 years of my career. Okay. So when mm-hmm. you were doing that work in the beginning there, was mm-hmm. that creating like print assets and things like that? Because people didn't have a website, right? This was prior to... This was all print. So, um, I mean, and this may this will definitely age me. Um, designers who wanted to put type into their designs would spec out the type by hand and send it to a local typographer, a, 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 you know, an, out, an output service that would basically do the typography for them, print it out on these kind of like waxy sheets. They would bring it back to the office. They would cut it up with razor blades, uh, paste it onto the boards. Um, very early on, I, I actually worked at a local newspaper where I cut Ruby lith overlays and, and strips of type. Um, you know, I cut out the, uh, the coloring around all the little grapes on the Safeway promos that would go into the middle of the uh, in, into the middle of the newspaper, and that's what I was doing right when the Macintosh kind of hit the scene and effectively replaced over the course of five years pretty much all the professional typographers went out of business over the next decade, and all the designers had access to these computers that allowed them to do their work, but they needed help making sure they knew how to use them, how to work, how to how to just make it all function. And so you must have taught yourself, like, it just must've been one of those things where you're like, oh, I like this and I'm, you know, young enough, my mind's flexible enough to kind of figure it all out. And then I can teach people who have been in this profession for so long, doing it the old way, how to adjust. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty much what it was. I, um, I, it was, it was really those, it was more symbiotic than that. I ended up getting jobs at locations effectively doing production. So I, I was a paste-up artist and I was using the computer as part of that tool. And I saw myself as an apprentice. So I would work under designers. They would teach me what it needed to look like and I would make it look like that. Um, and I was a graphic design major and I was asking all these questions because I was fascinated. And over the course of about a year, I started to know things had shift. Like rather than me coming to all the designers to ask them questions, they were starting to come to me because effectively, as I was asking them questions, I would be showing them and saying, is this what you mean? And I would do something on the computer and they say, wait a second, how'd you do that? And, <laughs> and so, yeah, I was, I was the, the 18, 19 year old kid and I have a 19 year old son. So I know what that's like to have these kids <laughs> that are really, like, super computer sufficient and yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay, so you did this kind of work for for a while, it sounds mm-hmm. like. And at what point did you have an idea that you could start your own firm, your own company? Um, well, actually, I did that pretty quickly. So okay. I, I, I started my firm. Firm sounds so uh, so sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> um, I went into business with a friend of mine. We both had worked at the newspaper together. Um, and I, I left college in my third, uh, my third semester. Um, I borrowed $500 from my parents for first and last on some office space. And we got some office space in downtown Seattle to basically create a support group for, for designers. Um, and we had no idea what we were doing. I, I am, I am shocked that we, that we did not fail immediately. Um, and we didn't fail me largely because we were able to help some people and we had some really great people in Seattle to basically take us under our, under their wings and support us and help teach us how to be a little more professional, how to actually like view ourselves as business people and, and, and actually figure out how to make a business run. 
Okay. And so that was the business that was prior to Creative Live. And exactly. It was called Creative Text. Is that Exactly. Like, and that's T-E-C-H-S, not text. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And um, and so um, so you had that business for a while. What are some of the things that you kind of learned about creatives and also about business and maybe about being in a partnership? Because your next business was also in a partnership through that first business experience. Well, you know, so over the course, so so that was I was in that business for about 20 years. And over the course of 20 years, it slowly went from just me as the main consultant up to actually having a team that was running the company. And I was not necessarily doing the work. And I was fortunate enough to basically work with, I mean, probably about 2000 Seattle artists over the course of those two decades, ranging from in-house creative departments inside of corporations to larger design firms to a lot of just individual studio owners. And so I worked with a lot of designers that would have like a mother-in-law apartment in the back of their house and they would have set up their own personal studio. Um, Some of them were creating products that they're selling. Some of them were working for clients on design and So I got a chance to basically see the inside of just hundreds and hundreds of small creative businesses. Um, I would say, I don't, I I think there were maybe a small number of those creative businesses where the person starting it saw themselves as a business owner when they started. But I think most of these were started by people that were following either a talent that they were trying to figure out how to make money from or they were following the muse and they, they just, they were, they found themselves spending the time and then it kind of flourished. And, and then some, some created a space where they actually had a hobby that they called the business. They, they, they were able to write off all their expenses. They made a little bit of money, but it wasn't enough to actually justify the time they were spending, but the time they were spending was for their love, not necessarily for the business. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm just wondering kind of, what lessons maybe you pulled out of that experience of knowing them? Because when you talk to lots and lots of creative business owners, like the ones that you described, mm-hmm. you sort of start noticing things. Um, I don't know if there's anything that you remember yeah. from that. Well, so actually, the the so there's kind of a saying that I kind of picked up over time. I'm not sure if I, if I said it or if I heard it, but you make a career for yourself working for yourself. So you make a career working for yourself. You make a business working for others. Mm -hmm. And there's this constantly this dynamic in play with, with creative artists trying to figure out how to satisfy their client, take care of them. And at the same time, trying to not kill their own desire for them. Um, Like for, if for in-house corporate designers, the thing I heard over and over again is they get so sick of designing with the same Pantone color. They get so tired of the same font palette that they've been working with for, for however long they've been there. Um, and a lot of them end up really like hungering for something outside of that corporate business to keep their creativity alive because they've been doing yeah. the same thing for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and then almost on the other side, um, there are creatives that work with so many clients that they are just longing for some type of stability. Like, in fact, I, I, had, a, I had a friend of mine who was a designer um, that has been on his own for the last 15 years um, and is, is contemplating taking a full-time job inside of a corporation. And for him, he was saying how much he thinks he'd really enjoy being able to just focus on the same brand and the same message for an extended period of time. So I, I, I think I think there are lucky people that find the balance that they want, but a lot of a, a lot of times I think there is this balance between stability and creativity and change and and kind of expertise that that everyone's on their own path trying to figure out. 
And so you started creating um, a video training, which we mentioned mm-hmm. in the yep. intro, and this was mm-hmm. for creative techs. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about that video training and then how it kind of blossomed into a new idea. Yeah. So I had part of being a, a support person for designers is I actually was an expert user of all the Adobe products. And, and prior to that, like adult, all, all this page maker and all these, all these different pieces that were coming up. So I did a lot of training on that and I was actually a certified trainer. And one of the things that really attracted me was teaching in that area. So we, when my business got to a place where there were other consultants that were doing all the work and I had a little bit of free time. I like to joke rather than buying a boat, we bought ourselves a training company. So we created this small little training company. I, I hired a friend of mine, um, Jason Hoppy, is a fantastic Adobe trainer. And basically we started iterating on how to create training uh, in small one hour, 90 minute chunks. Um, we were doing it in such a way that the, the designers around Seattle could just drop in for a little bit. create, and, and we were doing all these things to try to figure out a new way of bringing training. Um, and, and it was a lot of fun. It was my hobby business. It These was, were live trainings, right? They weren't, exactly. were they videotaped? They were live training. So people in Seattle area could come in, learn yeah. different aspects of some of the Adobe suite softwares with you. It, exactly. So th- this was over a two-year period. And the original goal was to have a small little training lab in Seattle. People could stop in for lunch and basically pick something up and have, and have lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, but we went through this process of just trying to figure out we, we the the this little division was making no money it was making about five thousand dollars a year it was the it, i loved it it was it was a lot of there's a lot of joy we were iterating we in the second year we started playing with webinar versions so we could bring bring things to people when they were remotely and um and that was around- hard to do then because that's probably what earlier 2000s early you know like it, i don't it, know it was, it was like 2008 2008 so, so to get like a video to download, you know, we we've come a long way, but people's broadband, it, it, it didn't really, uh, it, it wasn't something everybody could access from home. Let's put it that way. No. And, and, and in fact, each time we did it, we had to figure things out from scratch. So there were, there were no real examples of what we were doing out there in play. Um, we ended up using go to webinar. Um, we, and then we ended up like building this, this, um, kind of hybrid, classroom that eventually became what creative live was where we allowed people to come and sit in person and talk to or to our instructor and we broadcast the webinar up on the um uh, on the screen and people could attend the webinar remotely and one of the tricks that we did is we used a delay on what was showing up on the screen in front of the audience so that their reactions would mirror people who were watching from home with a delay because at that time uh, with GoToWebinar, the audio was delayed about 30 seconds be- after the video. Right. So you had to artificially create that same delay so that everybody would be in sync and it wouldn't be this sort of odd social interaction. Exactly. We didn't want people, they didn't want to hear the, you know, you didn't want to like hear the ooh and ah before you actually saw whatever it was <laughs> they were talking about. Right, right. That's so interesting because I always wondered, and we'll talk a little bit about Creative Lives model, but I always wondered how that model came to be. And so now I know um, that's, yeah, that's because it is unique and and really different. Okay. So you had come up with this. Um, and, and how did you meet your eventual partner for, for creative live chase Jarvis? So I had actually worked with him for a decade because he was one of my clients at my it company. 
Um, uh, he, he was one of the premier photographers in Seattle. He had a huge server. He had a lot of technical needs. And so we had been supporting him for the last decade. Um, and, and so we knew each other. We'd had a lot of chance to work together that we'd be moved studio several times and he had just grown and grown and grown. He had become really, uh, connected to Apple. Like he was, he, he, he was really pushing the boundaries on what was possible and it was starting to actually explore live video around the same time that we were exploring live video. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. So you guys connected, mm-hmm. you're teaching these trainings. Mm-hmm. How did you realize actually this little tiny training company that's making $5,000 a year actually should become my full-time business? Well, okay. So the way I discovered that is when it's around 2008, I'm trying to remember the exact timing, but you remember when the entire economy collapsed because yeah. of mortgages? Yeah. No, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, around that time, um, I realized I was not going to be able to continue to support my little business hobby um, because all my clients were under pressure, our business under pressure, our business was doing okay, but it could no longer support this really expensive hobby of the owner who loved to have a little training company. And I remember one weekend, just, I just, I just, I I wanted this so much, but I just knew I was going to have to like get rid of it because we couldn't afford it. And I had a spreadsheet. I was trying to figure out all these different ways we could make it work. And every time I, 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 I ran all the numbers for what it would take for advertising to hit a critical mass, like it was always, we were always just at zero. And I thought, well, if it's, if we're not making any money, why don't we just give it away for free? And at least it would, at least something would happen. And we decided to just do a Hail Mary. We basically said the last course we're going to do is going to be a, a free online 30 or a, was it 30 day? 10 week. It was a free online 10 week Photoshop course. Okay. Um, and I had a 30,000 person mailing list at that point that was worldwide. Um, and we just announced it and basically said, show up. Um, we're going to figure out how to monetize it at some point during this. So, so, so week one, we hadn't quite figured it out and introducing week one, we basically said, we're going to show this up for free. If you want to record, if you want a recording of it that you can have forever, it is going to cost $99. I think it was going to cost $50 and it was going to go up to $99 by week 10. So every week it went up by like $5. Okay. And we made $30,000 on that and had a huge audience and had a huge energy. And basically that turned everything around that, that, that was the creative live business model in a nutshell. And um, so why was that one more expensive or not more expensive, but more successful? Was it because you decided to go all in and make it a 10 week course. And like maybe prior to then it, they were shorter or they were less, I don't know, you're sort of putting less into it and decided like, let's just really do this and give it away for free. And, and all like, what was it about that one that made $30,000 when the other ones weren't? I mean, it really, come, it, it, it's the, it's a creative life business model in a nutshell, which is we give the education away for free for anyone that will come watch it in real time. And so when we're doing that, if it's, if it's good and it's interesting, it is, um, you know, we'll have thousands of people, we'll have thousands or or tens of thousands of people. So in this case, we had, we had a, we had about 1500 people that were watching this Photoshop course. And if it's good, people want to be able to watch it again, or people find that they're unable to commit to the full hour on all these things. And people who have the money and can pay will pay to increase their freedom around watching video. And for people who, who who don't have the money, they probably have the time to be able to watch for free. And so it's kind of this dynamic where the people who need it for free can have it for free. 
And the people who, who are being pulled away because they've got business or they've got other things are presumably making money and can afford to pay and, and wish to pay in order to have more freedom. Right. And when you look at the Creative Live website, there's always free classes streaming, exactly. um, which you can you know tune into. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in learning something, you could kind of come every day and learn something new for free. Um, but that's interesting that you figured out that people would pay for that freedom to be able to watch it in their own schedule. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Tracy Reuter from Divine Social. Uh, Tracy Reuter and our company is Divine Social. And what is Divine Social? So we are a uh, advertising agency. We're a digital marketing agency that helps and focuses um, on brands and businesses that sell to makers, creators, crafters, artists, DIY enthusiasts, and we help them create successful digital acquisition strategies. Okay. So what does that even mean? So it's great that you specialize in this niche. So you're talking to makers, which is awesome. And you understand them. You're a maker yourself. Um, But what does all of that other part mean? So our specialty is when you're when you have your own storefront and you are trying to get people um, to go from never hearing about you to actually buying from you on your e-commerce storefront. We specialize in basically designing, if you will, um, the creative process to get people from never heard about you before to becoming raving fans. We've been serving the makerspace for over, gosh, five and a half years now. We're actually our team is been quietly behind some of the biggest brands in the space. And we have a tremendous amount of experience understanding the nuances of very tactile products. And we know a lot of times people want to touch and feel things, but we've really mastered how do you do it digitally? So if someone is if a company is wanting to really grow um, their direct to consumer, their whether it's Shopify or Whatever it is that they they own, so not not necessarily an Etsy store or um, Amazon or something like that, but directly. Um, that's what we've been doing for the last almost six years now in this particular space. That's fantastic! Such a good resource to know about. Um, and how can people find you and be able to reach out to you? Well, if you our our website is divinesocial.com. Um, and you can go there. And then if you go to divinesocial.com forward slash CIA, uh, for a limited time, we have a, an opportunity for people who are already doing direct to consumer and want to get our eyes on their store to find out what's preventing you from getting more customers. So That's definitely there. So valuable. Thank you so much, Tracy. My pleasure. Thanks, Abby. Thank you so much, Divine Social. And now back to my conversation with Craig. And, you know, I think the timing is really great because when the economy was in trouble, a lot of people wanted to go back and learn new skills. And so really what happened is there are whole communities of people that were free during the day that would watch Creative Live. We, I guess we haven't got to the actual launching of Creative Live, but... but we'll um, get there next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So tell, I mean, tell us about yeah. that. So tell us about how, um, how you kind of pivoted to make this the business. Well, I mean, effectively, the first class that made more money than we'd made pretty much in the history of, of this little training company said, okay, there's something here. This is going to work. And we immediately did a second class, a 10 week course on illustrator. I think we were on our third 10 week course. They were, they were all doing great. Um, I was talking to chase about it. He pointed to uh, some people at it. And um, that was, that was late 2008, 2009. 
And in 2010, we decided we're just going all in. Um, I, I sold the IT company, which was Creative Text, to to my employees. So they, they, we, we created a, a buyout over time for them. Um, and it's still running today. They're still running the company. Um, that buyout gave me about three years of coverage to just not, not to, not to, not to live well, but to just have a little bit of money coming in while we were trying to figure out how to make creative live work. And then in 2010, we launched creative live with the same model, same thing, same thing. Chase started bringing in uh, contacts and connections and photography, and it just exploded. This was during the, like I said, during the uh, the economic downturn. There were a lot of people at home that needed to learn new skills, and really, this this relationship became for people who did not have a job at that time. They could watch all week long and get new skills. And when they got a job that started pulling them away from their ability to watch for free, they would also have the money to start paying for the courses that they wanted. Right. And this was really early in ed tech. I mean, ed tech's really exploded since then, but I feel like this was one of the earlier, you know, uh, platforms and, and I, and then, you know, you see Skillshare Mm -hmm. pop up, you see Craftsy and the crafts, you know, space pop up their masterclass pop up, you know, these other sort of, um, big ed tech platforms, Creative Bug, and the craft space mm-hmm. as well. So I wondered what you think kind of continued to differentiate Creative Live and make it different from some of those other competitors. I mean, I would say for me, probably the fact so the fact that it's free is the fact that it's free was really significant. Um, but even then, when I was talking about the original the original workshop where we were doing things in the room to try to sync the audio experience yeah. uh, for the delay in broadcasting. We put a lot of energy into eye lines, into creating spaces. The The idea behind a creative live workshop should be that the people who are watching remotely should feel the cues as if they are there in the room and they should feel the emotion in the room. They should, they should feel what's going on. And that is not a natural thing for a lot of online ed tech to focus on. A lot of education platforms focus on the information. They think if I'm pointing my camera at someone who has the right information, then that is my job. And for me, especially because I've worked with, with artists and creatives my entire career, honestly, most of learning for me is not about the information. It is about the context and about uh, kind of the emotional context around information, because is anything that someone wants to know, wants to learn informationally can probably be had for free with a properly worded Google search. There's really nothing we've ever created or sold that's not available for free in text form. But we as humans learn from watching others. We learn from stories and like that connection with people. And um, my analogy was, if you're in a large college class, you know, like the 101 classes, you've got 2000 students. The teacher doesn't talk to all the students. The teacher talks to maybe, maybe 2% of the students that are engaging. But when I'm in that room and I'm feeling being in the room, and I'm hearing the people talk and I'm seeing the instructor talking to those 2% of students that are actually raising their hand, I'm vicariously feeling like I'm being seen and heard because I'm seeing the instructor with them. And so for us, it's almost like Creative Live was built around the audience first and then created a space for the instructors, where most learning platforms put the instructor 
on a pedestal. And, and actually, you know, you taught there. I don't know, like, is this what it felt like to you? Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because that summer of 2016, mm-hmm. I filmed two online classes. Mm-hmm. I filmed one online class that was a sewing class with a different mm-hmm. company. Yeah. And I filmed uh, a um, email newsletter class with mm-hmm. Creative Live. So it was, I had, I had one in July and one in August. So they were back to back and they were, they were not the same. Um, mm-hmm. The the one that was the sewing class, as you said, we were in a, a, a studio, there was a cameraman, couple cameramen, um, there was like a producer, et cetera, and me. And there was yeah. no audience. There was no live audience. There was no studio audience or anything like that. Um, and I would like sew and read off the teleprompter, et cetera. It was an interesting experience for sure. At Creative Live, though, it is really different in that there was a live studio audience. So I was up on this sort of like mini stage, I guess you could call it. And then there was, I don't know how many people there, maybe like 15 or something like that. Students, some of whom I'm still in touch with, were in the audience throughout the entire day. And then there was a live audience on, you know, on online at the same time. And and then there was a producer there who would take questions from the live audience, as well as from the studio audience. But I interacted with the studio audience because they're right in front of you. So you're like, oh, you know, and you have that real um, energy of the, the students who are right there, which, you know, you just can't replicate. I mean, it's, it's, as you said, I think a lot, I, I, I'm formally trained as a teacher. I was a middle school teacher. And I think that so much of teaching is about relationships. Exactly. I, I, I think that is so huge because honestly, I think what ends up happening, I think learning happens when we leave the classroom or leave the place we've been educated and realize we've forgotten everything. And then we decide whether it's worth going through our notes or like re-educating ourselves to remind ourselves what it is we've forgotten. And so I think, I think the greatest teachers are the ones that inspire me to want to learn and make me believe I can learn more than being the people that are the best at delivering the content. That is so interesting because I think back to when my kids learned to ride a bike, right? So I would take them to the parking lot and run around behind them, pushing and holding the bike up and things like that. And then Really, when they learned was when we got back home later in the day and they went outside by themselves and they Mm -hmm. were like, okay, I'm going to figure it out. Like, I see how to do this, but now I need to figure it out. And it's the same thing with swimming. They would take swimming lessons, but where they really learned was during free swim when the swimming teacher wasn't there and they had all the skills, but then it was time for them to be like, I I now I want to do it. You know, I'm going to apply it and try it and figure it out for myself. You know, that, that is so beautiful. And that, that is exactly right. And what you are doing as a parent or as a teacher or as an instructor is you're making people, you're giving people a story that they can adopt that I can do this, or this is within reach for me. And, and I really do think, I think, especially at higher ed, a lot, there's a lot of judging that happens in, in traditional adult education that takes adults that are already a little bit uncomfortable learning. And somehow we believe that it's the teacher's job to judge the student's performance instead of it's being the teacher's job to create a belief in the student that this is within reach for them and that it's worth them looking foolish and enjoying the process. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're working with adult learners in particular, Mm -hmm. people come in with, you know, uh, baggage, right? They, they already Mm -hmm. feel like I'm bad at this. 
I know I'm bad at this, you know, or, or whatever. And so sometimes it's, you know, it's a little bit more of an uphill climb. I feel like with kids, you know, they're more flexible in some ways, you know, and like, I'm a great artist. And then at a certain (laughs) point you turn it, you're like, I'm bad at drawing, you know, and that, and it's hard to beat that. You know what? Oh, so that's such a great example. So here's the thing. When you watch kids learn the the teacher will paint, whatever the teacher is going to paint, teach them something. The kids will think they are painting the same thing. And it is nowhere close, like it is wildly off. Or if they are, if they're doing a dance, the teacher will show them a dance. And what the kids are doing is so inaccurate for what the teacher is teaching. And adults view this when they are doing this and judge themselves as to whether they are matching that master instructor in the movements. Kids believe they're doing it right. And that belief that they're doing it right gives them the desire to repeat and repeat and repeat until they actually build the skills. And so what were the classes that did the best? It sounds like the Adobe Suite classes mm-hmm. were very successful. Mm-hmm. Chase is, as you said, a, a very well-regarded photographer. And so mm-hmm. I'm assuming photography classes were probably in the next um, sector. And so yeah. what what kind of in the start of Creative Live was really kind of the basis of it and took off the most? I This is going to this is going to sound odd. Um, I don't know if it'll sound odd. Um, the courses that really were explosive were ones in which people in the, in the audience processed some of their own self blocks in order to, to get a new skill. So whether that skill was around running a business and sales and marketing, or whether it's around posing, I will say for a photographer um, who, who, who takes photos of people, there is a real, that brings up a lot of issues around performance when there is a human being in front of me and in front of my lens, and I am trying to figure out how to do this. And and if I am inherently judging myself, I feel judged because there's not the person there. And so this whole process of people stepping through their fears to try to get something that they want for themselves. I think when our students in, in on camera visibly did that, it provided a, a opportunity and an excuse for people who are watching to do that. Um, so the one thing we get at Creative Lives, like the courses with laughter and the courses with tears were the ones that did best, somewhat somewhat apart from the actual topic matter, because um, because those, those those that laughter and tears were from people who were trying to claim something in their life that they wanted. They were not just going to a comedy show. They were trying to create a business they wanted. They were trying to create a skill that they wanted. And they had to step through their own belief or their own challenge or everything else to be able to get that for themselves. And so as this platform starts to Mm -hmm. build steam, build up steam, Mm -hmm. um, you sought out venture capital to be able to grow this Mm -hmm. business and scale it. So talk a little bit about, I guess, that decision and what it was like to pitch investors. Well, and to be honest, I was not the one pitching the investor. So that, that was Chase's area. So I, I definitely can speak to the, the side of the equation of running the business that was going through that. Um, there were only a couple investor calls that I was actually involved in. Um, and, and definitely the due diligence process once we got, once we, once we got um, capital. Um, there were a lot of internal debates in terms of how, how big we wanted to grow, whether we want to grow big, what, what various goals were. We had a fairly traditional, I, I wish I had a photo of it, but a fairly traditional blackboard conversation 
when I say traditional, Silicon Valley traditional, where there there is this graph that that's at zero on the left, and then there's a graph, then it goes up in some odd line to a billion dollars in the upper right. There's there's this there's this dreaming process that um, that's kind of classic Silicon Valley. Um, but um, the biggest challenge was trying to serve our audience and create create product create create for our audience while at the same time we were also presenting to like this second viewer that is is not our audience but is basically judging the business and looking for the opportunity in the business and so um we were really lucky we had we we showed really well and our audience really supported us the the big thing is we would do call outs with our audience and they would um they would basically tell our story for us when we were not telling as well as we could we would get press articles and we would send our audience to go leave comments on it so as we were talking to investors recent articles would have you know hundreds and hundreds of testimonials from people that we had been helping in the comments um you, you might be asking from the business side from the business side um bringing in capital really didn't change the business all that much but bringing in the contacts was tremendous. Uh, the the we we partnered with we brought in some VC. We took some VC funding, and the talent and the mind and the and the skill of the people involved basically brought in this new whole new level of of business. And um, we built out the San Francisco studio. That was one of the requirements is having a San Francisco um, headquarters as part of funding, which is where you were at. And and I will say you don't get a building as beautiful as that was without spending some money. I gotta tell you. I had such a good time. Mm. I was like living the Silicon Valley mm. dream for like three mm. days because <laughs> there was, first of all, there was like a, I don't know if it was a cactus wall or like some kind of living plant wall, which I had never actually seen in person I, before. Was, so no, it was, it was like, it was moss. They used moss, as moss. Paint on the, on this wall. It was beautiful. Oh my gosh. I was like, that's super cool. And then mm. they had a kitchen and they mm. fed everybody. And it was like, what you read about, you know, I live in Boston. So this was very cool to me. <laughs> like there was like, you know, all you can eat, all you can drink all day long. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I was saying to you before we started recording, it was also the first time I ever took an Uber. So <laughs> I thought it was just like a, such a great experience from the instructor perspective. It was really like very fun and very, you know, cool and interesting to do. And, and yeah. so, yeah. So you had those two, you had the Seattle Mm -hmm. original studio. Then you yep. had the San Francisco studio, things were, you know, expanding. And then um, it sounds like you actually left creative live around 2015. Is that right? Yeah. So I, so uh, Chase became CEO in 2015 and I started my exit in 2015. I, I um, so I, I, I retired from creative live midway through 2015. Um, and then in 2016, um, we started a small little incubator and investment company that basically partners with um, influencers, trainers, educators. And I mean, one way to say it is basically creates small niche creative live type of platforms around one person and one person's uh, talent. Okay. So can, mm -hmm. give us an example of somebody who you've done that with. So, I mean, the, the, the biggest example, the most, one of the, one of the, one of the ones that, that was most initially was Sue Bryce. So Sue Bryce is a photographer that teaches, um, glamor and portrait photography, um, had started building her own 
membership-based education platform around that. Um, prior to that, she had been one of the biggest instructors at Creative Live and, and still was one of the biggest instructors in Creative Live. And around 2015 had decided that she was going to um, try to create her own platform. Um, when when I left Creative Live and at the same time when George and Aaron, two other people that were at Creative Live that, that did video production and were the were head of recruiting uh, left, we all three came together and Sue invited us in to help grow her company, um, which we, which, which we, which became really explosive. I mean, by 2018, it was really, it was really firing on all cylinders. It was really significant. We had about 8,000, we have about 8,000 members. We, George added an annual conference to it. So we had this, this big event where people would come in person um, and we started spinning off and creating platforms for other photographers. Um, and I think she sold it to Emerald Expositions. She did. She did. So as of April last year, um, Emerald Expositions, which is one of the U.S.'s largest trade show companies. They own New York now. People listening would be familiar with New York exactly, now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, they are huge. They also have a number of photography-based trade shows. Um, when the pandemic hit, their ability to put on in-person trade shows basically went away for a year more we're still figuring all that out um but they had pandemic insurance as a corporation um so they were made whole for a lot of their losses and one of the things that they've been doing is strategically adding online education platforms to supplement what they what they were unable to provide during the pandemic in terms of in person and now as the as it's coming back we're trying to merge those two together so yeah, so so they they knew Sue. Uh, uh, George had, wor- had worked with them previously. Uh, they approached us about buying Superice Education, and um, it took about two hundred and eighty-five days of due diligence. But uh, by the end of it, uh, they acquired everything, and it becomes part of Emerald. That's great. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, so they're diversifying into mm-hmm. online education, mm-hmm. and also Sue as an independent creator, creating a membership site mm-hmm. and then in-person event, but also really robust online education. And what we've seen, you know, so Creative Live, I did an, an email marketing class, mm-hmm. and then a few years later, I filmed my own email marketing class from my home right oh, where I'm great. sitting now mm-hmm. and, um, and launched it to my own email list. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it's interesting because, you know, I, I made some money in my creative live class. I still get mm-hmm. royalty checks. I just got a royalty check from them last week. Um, so I still get royalty yep. checks from it, which is nice. But the day that I launched the email marketing class from my home, I made $10,000. So yep. that was a really nice day. And, um, and so I think what we've seen since, Let's go even back to when you founded, co-founded mm-hmm. Creative Live to, to now independent creators like myself are, you know, really adept at filming at, in their own spaces yeah. and building their own direct-to-consumer audience. And so I wondered if you could kind of reflect on that transformation because back then, you know, 2008-9, it really was difficult to do a lot of those things. It really was. And I so I keep building new platforms and every year it is just easier and easier and easier. The, the technology with your phone, like well, I assume you have an iPhone, but an iPhone can, can do more than almost all the equi- equipment we had available to us in 2008. Um, so, and creative professionals, you know, creative artists, 
have the ability, have the technical ability to basically create their own platform for their own for their own customers and do whatever they want. So, you know, your example of having a list that you've nurtured over years, you, you, you obviously teach people how to nurture that list. So so you have a, a bit of an advantage and a head start there. Um, you have it in your control to be able to create your own materials, to sell it and to create a really sustainable and enjoyable life for yourself if, if that's what you want. And especially yeah. with the pandemic. I will say though, you know, working with a company like Creative Live mm -hmm. um, and also the company that I filmed the sewing class with mm -hmm. taught me a lot, you know? Yeah. Um, so you work with a, a and I can't remember if they're the producer or somebody who kind of helps you plan the curriculum, break yep. it all down into individual lessons, kind of figure out what to do. And even mm -hmm. though I, you know, I have a degree in education, this is what I used to do in, in my, you know, writing lesson plans, et cetera. Yep. It was very helpful to have had that sort of more, I don't know if you would call it formal or corporate experience before doing it myself. Not that I couldn't yeah. have, but anyway, I just, I will say there is value in working with or partnering with an established company. Absolutely. Well, and working with a company or, or hiring someone to be a support. There's, there's a, there's a lot of people that are providing either courses or support around building these. And actually several past creative live instructors have their own companies basically creating and, and being on hire uh, producers for this type of work. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I will say just, you know, from my own vantage point, even people who create courses for others and help, help them organize their own courses sometimes struggle when they're creating their own. Like there is, it is, it is sometimes hard for us to have our own distance from our own area of, of teaching. Um, I mean, I, I run into this myself constantly as I, I am so good or I, or whether I'm good, I've made a career out of working with people to create content that will sell and, and good gauging what is good. And when I become part of the equation, it just messes up all my ability to sense what is going on. Yeah, I think a yeah. lot of people can relate to that. I definitely yeah. can. And so Creative Live was sold not yes. too long mm -hmm. ago to Fiverr. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And I I remember I was I had just pulled up to the Starbucks mm -hmm. parking lot when I got that alert on my phone and I was like, wow, that I that was I I didn't expect it. Um mm -hmm. that's a pair, you know, like it just seemed like mm -hmm. a, so I wondered if you had any thoughts about um about that acquisition and and does it make sense to you? I think it does make sense. I mean, I, I think there's there's a number of things that could have made sense, but for five, I think it makes a lot of sense for Fiverr. Um, Fiverr already was developing their own in-house training programs and, and is both to train their their creative professionals that use the Fiverr network to get to get gigs, as well as looking at adding additional products that they can sell just generally. So um, they were they were creating their own. And I think just saw the opportunity with Creative Live that Creative Live, first of all, had such a strong back catalog and also had such strong skills around creating this type of content. Right. Um, because I will say, like in this world, in this world today, when the technical ability to create most of this content sits within most everyone's computers and 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 homes. A team that knows how to create these types of things is really it does have a place but it but the place is different now so they are basically able to come together and create things that most creators could not do on their own um 
And I will say that like a, a, a lot of creators will want to do both things. They'll want to be, get a class on Creative Live or one of the big platforms to get the prominence, to get the name, to get everything else. And then they'll often want to have a their own private course that is slightly askew from that public course that they can use that generates more revenue for them personally. Yeah. And are there big, um, not big, but are there ed tech firms out there that you're watching right now that you think are really interesting? And I'm sure you kind of keep up with this sort of um, sector. And I just wondered if you have your eye on anything that's happening now with, you know, Duolingo, or I don't know, there's quite a few of these sort of companies around that are teaching people online how to do things and and whether any of them caught your eye. Well, you know, the one that the one that actually I that I associate most with what we were attempting to do in Creative Live and kind of like what I'm interested in is actually masterclass. Okay. So, and, and, and masterclass is a little bit interesting because some of the classes are very much just entertainment. I mean, there, there, there's classes on masterclass from NASA astronauts on how to be an astronaut. Well, clearly that's not, that's not an online learning type of topic. Um, but it's a little bit like National Geographic, National Geographic, Geographic right. or or the Discovery Channel. And I will say that there is this or even the Food Network, right, where exactly. you're watching. You're never going to make that, but you're just watching mm-hmm. it because it's entertaining. Yeah, exactly. And I will say the thing that I have started to be leaning into more and more is something I call bingeable education, um, which is especially around my kind of belief that a lot of what education is, is creating a story in people's heads that they can do it, to be inspired, to be able to go through. It's almost like little mini reality shows where it is where, where you're not creating a false drama by voting people off an island or things like that, but watching people try to learn in public and in watching them, we learn in ourselves because sometimes our brain is confused. Like when we're watching other people do things, um, we sometimes our brain thinks we're doing it. And so during the pandemic, um, I, I, I have a number on I have a number of online businesses. And during the pandemic, a lot of people would be using online education instead of watching Netflix. So rather than watching eight hours of the Netflix show, they will, you know, they'll study classes on how to be in photography, or um, we are working on some, I'm working on a a food-based, a a teaching uh, network for food, some things like that. Um, So that's really what I'm kind of interested in. The, the, um, the, this idea of kind of social learning where we get to learn people we get to watch people learning and that's a way of us being able to access new information because I think that's something that you can't get as much from, from, from just a home, from a home video producer um, uh, who's creating the content and the information. And in fact, they almost work together where it's almost like you can use the inspiration from watching other people learn. And then you go find the best tool that's going to give me the information. Mm -hmm. There's a place for both. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as an example, and I, I don't know if you run into this with uh, with email marketing, I find any creative that is creating a marketing message for themselves brings up a lot of self-esteem issues. Um, I, I remember one one graphic designer I was coaching where I was just I, I was I was encouraging her to just to put two business cards into her bill, into her billing statement, when she was sending bills out with a note saying, if you know anyone else that needs graphic design, please give them one of my cards. And whether or not that would work, whether it was a good idea, there was such 
she had such an emotional story about what people would think about her if she dared to put two business cards into her her invoice envelope. Um, and that story that she was telling herself had nothing to do with her clients, nothing to do with what the market was saying, nothing to do with anything except for a story in her head. And that story in her head was incredibly real to her. And I would say even like verged on a, on a sense of like moral mission for her. like, like, like it, it, like putting two business cards felt like a moral outrage to her where she was coming from at that point. Yeah. Um, and and I, and I think just as, as, as artists, as creators, it, it, it is so hard to, to advocate for our future selves. Um, I, I will say like the one thing I always thought that Chase and I had in common that, that if I could pass on to anyone else would be good is, is we were able to treat our future selves with as, at least as much respect as we did our clients. And what do you mean by that? How how would that play out? That, what that means is we invest in our future as much as we invest ourselves into our clients. Um, so it's really easy. It's really easy to because I'm taking money from from customers, whether whether they're buying products or whether whether they're whether whether it's services, for me to prioritize their needs over mine. Um, that that could be from family raising that could be from it could be just tactics but it could be all sorts of things it also is easier for me to focus on them because i don't have to actually be all that interested or explore my own desires or what i want um but one of the things i came to at one point is i decided i wanted to put at least 20 percent of my business's effort into creating the foundation that i would be able to use two years from now so effectively one of my clients became the future version of me that that I was going to put some energy into like, like, and, um, and, and if I hadn't been doing that, I wouldn't have had the two or three years of kind of this failed, not failed, but, but, but non-profitable um, education platform that grew into creative live. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of other things that wouldn't have happened if I had not been willing to occasionally make me the priority instead of my clients. Mm, that's a great point. Yeah. Now that yeah. said, I don't get a business if I don't take care of clients. So like, like it's not, I mean, there's also a lot of people, there's also creatives that go the other way that basically says, I'm going to be an artiste and I am not like, I'm not, I'm going to care not what people think of, of me or my work and I'm going to do it just for me. And they don't have a business, which is fine if, if, if they've got other ways of supporting themselves. But, and that's the, and that's the trick is finding this balance between making ourselves a priority enough to be able to lay a foundation for our future and making our clients enough foundation that we can actually pay for today. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get to your recommendations. Um, yes. So you have a couple of really good ones. Mm-hmm. One of them was Airbnb for family getaways, especially during COVID. And it's been interesting. We did the same thing. It sounds like you all got an Airbnb. And, you know, when you're not super comfortable, maybe flying or going to take, you know, to a hotel, mm-hmm. an Airbnb where you're all together in, in the same house. Um, was a really good option. And, and we did that as well. I, it, that was probably the best thing we did for ourselves. We, we normally go to the East coast every summer and, and we just couldn't with the, in the year of 2020 um, and hotels were not open, but we just thought, Hey, if we just, um, if we take our, our family pod and we just go rent out an entire house, 
we can basically take our family pod on a trip and just in, not 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 engage with anyone any more than just us. And we, it was really it was really wonderful, and we got to see a lot of things along along the Oregon coast um, that we would not have experienced otherwise. Yeah, totally. My family just made a um, scrapbook of, of the pandemic, a pandemic scrapbook, mm-hmm. and um, we have so many great pictures from our trip that we where we stayed in the Airbnb for a week. And my kids really, you know, camp was canceled. All their, yeah. they couldn't get summer jobs. All of their plans were canceled, but they still have great memories from that time. And so I feel like Airbnb was really a lifesaver in the midst of that. You know, and for me, this was my this was my son's graduating year from high school. So it was the last year we were going to have him as part of the integrated family before he was off living his life. And it really, it was a really wonderful way to spend his last year. He he missed his graduation, but we got to spend time with him over the summer that we would not have otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Your second recommendation are moleskin reporters notebooks. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, this is so I am a creative. I I I I I constantly come up with ideas. And the moleskin notebook is a strategy I took on for myself to keep me from chasing every idea. So I use moleskin notebooks to write down my ideas um so that I can forget about those ideas. Basically, it'll lets me. It, as ideas come up, I write them down and then I just allow them to go. And, um, and, and the, 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 what I do is basically when I'm playing with new ideas, I, I create a list, 101 list of ideas around different subjects. And part of that is because I am such a creative person and I do fall in love with my ideas. I was making too many decisions about what I should do while I was falling in love with the newest idea. And so I was, I was racing from new thing to new thing always believing that I was going to have this love with that idea be true for the next five years. And like it would be replaced by the next idea that sometimes an hour later, sometimes a couple, a couple days later. Um, and I just needed a way to separate my love of coming up with ideas from the part of me that decides what I'm actually going to do with my life. That's a great tip. Love mm-hmm. that. Okay. Your last recommendation is called brick out. And I have to tell you, I have never heard of this before. So what well, is this? It, it's just, it, it, it's an, we had to give a list. It's, it is, it is the iPhone game that I play. Um, okay. Where, where yeah. We just have like, it's just, you're just knocking bricks out. It's like an, it's like an upgraded version of the old Atari brick out uh, game. Okay. And, you know, my wife played, so my wife plays Sudoku. Um, we're actually playing a little bit of Wordle now, but I, I need something to kind of like just kind of quiet my mind, something where there's no strategy, there's no words, there's really nothing involved. And I just find that this one little, uh, for me, app um, just is a really great way for me to be able to quiet my mind at the end of the day. I think everyone should find something like that. For me, it is this kind of like bouncing ball where I'm knocking out other things at the top of a screen on my iPhone for a little bit of time. Yeah, that mindlessness is really... Mm-hmm key, you know, it's important. Um, so that's a good suggestion too, for what, whatever game people want to play. Well, mm-hmm. Craig, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the craft industry Alliance podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed this. I appreciate you having me on. And you've been listening to the craft industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by divine social. Divine Social is a marketing agency that helps e-commerce stores who sell to makers, creators, crafters, artists, and DIY enthusiasts. 
They're behind some of the biggest brands in the creative industry, responsible for strategies to move your online traffic from prospects to buyers to raving fans. The team at Divine Social is offering a customized review of your shop to help you uncover what's keeping you from selling more. Go to divinesocial.com backslash CIA for more details. Thank you so much, Divine Social. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.